In a season one episode of the hit television program, The Andy Griffith Show, released in 1961, Deputy Barney Fife is cleaning his gun when he gets a small cut on his finger. Andy goes across the street to the drugstore to get sulfur powder to clean, the, uh, to clean the wound when he runs into some of the local ladies who are gossiping about the other women around town. Convinced that there is more to Andy's story than meets the eye, the show depicts the women going out and spreading rumors about this incident that continue to build in severity and outlandishness. One says that Barney was cleaning his gun and got a serious infection. Another, another down the gossip line says that the way she heard it, Barney had, was cleaning his gun and ripped off his arm clean to his shoulder. The rumor mill ends with one lady saying on the phone, Have you heard the news? Barney Fife shot himself in the chest. Such storylines about the mishandling of information and the misunderstandings that come from it have become common tropes and the backbone of nearly all sitcoms on the small screen to date. By the end of nearly epi every episode, the truth is usually found out and the characters either laugh it off or reconcile with each other and move on only to get into the same scrapes from the same circumstances the next week. As much as Hollywood would like us to think that such things are laughing matters with no real victims, the Word of God provides a much more stark and st uh, sinister reality to these issues. The Bible speaks extensively against the acts of gossip, slander, their synonyms and related actions. These are not actions that ought to be glorified or emulated in the Lord's church and amongst the Lord's people. And yet, I believe that these are issues that all of us, myself included, have stumbled in. And I want to make it very clear that my thoughts tonight are not directed at any one or any one situation. Far from it, in fact. And as we go through this topic, I know that my mind has flashed to many mistakes that I personally have made in my own past that I wish I could correct now. And I pray that our study will help us all avoid such mistakes in the future. The questions that we want to answer by the time that we are through are these. Number one, what do the words gossip, slander, and their biblical synonyms mean? Number two, in what biblical context are these sins often condemned? Are they typically just included in sin list or something more specific? Number three, how can Christians identify if information being relayed to them is gossip? Number four, what responsibility do Christians have in confronting gossips? Do they need to rebuke them publicly, report them to the elders, etc.? And finally, how should gossip and slander received about preachers, elders, or leaders affect our decision-making process, whether that be in service or in gospel meetings or in fellowship, etc.? We're going to begin this evening by looking at some word definitions. We will notice biblical examples of dealing with information, how to avoid the sins of gossip, slander, and its affiliates, and then we will conclude by answering some practical questions about the topic. So... Tonight we're going to set up some dominoes a little bit, and it might take a little bit of time, but I am confident that once we get them set up, we'll be able to knock them over and get the satisfaction from that. So let's start here. Webster's Dictionary defines it as this, a person who habitually reveals personal or sensational facts about others, rumor or report of an intimate nature, chatty talk, the subject matter of gossip. That's the definition for gossip. For slander, the essential meaning is to make a false spoken statement that causes people to have a bad opinion of someone. As a noun, the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations 
which defame and damage another's reputation. A false and defamatory oral statement about a person. This is what we commonly are talking about when these subjects come up. However, it's important for us to remember that in most older translations, like the King James Version, words like gossip and slander are rarely used uh, specifically, though their spirit lingers large in the text. And this is merely due to the changing vocabulary that has happened in the English language over the past 400 years. So our topic really extends to all language that is used in communication both to and about individuals. So what biblical words fall under this category? Let's notice in the Old Testament for a moment, such as Proverbs 11 verse 13. It says, A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Additionally, Proverbs 20 verse 19, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. Leviticus 19 verse 16, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. The Hebrew word there is that particular one. And Brown, Driver, and Briggs defines it as slander, slanderer, talebearer, or an informer. So this is something that we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God's uh, design and His desire for His people has not changed from one covenant to the next. Strong's also defines it as a scandal mongerer, as traveling about slander, carry tales, or a talebearer. Now let's move to the New Testament. In James 4 verse 11 it talks about that we are not to speak evil of one another. This word uh, is defined as this, to speak against, slander, or accuse. A related word is found in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10 where Paul talks about how he takes pleasures in infirmities and in reproaches. Additionally, we have this verse here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. This is a related word to the one there in James 4 verse 11 which means, very similarly, slander, defamation, or evil speech. We have in 1 Timothy 5 verse 13, this is talking about women um, who are not doing what they need to be doing. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. This particular word found in 1 Timothy 5 verse 13 means to bubble or a garrulous. A garrulous person. If you're like me and didn't know what that word meant until just this moment, that means excessively talking particularly about trivial matters. Uh, that is a praetor or a tattler. Additionally, in Jude 1 verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses dared not bring against him a reviling, Old King James says a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 8, it says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, interestingly enough, or reviling and slander, filthy language out of your mouth. First Timothy 6 verse 4, he is proud knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words which, uh, from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. We have more of this particular word. Ephesians 4 verse 31, evil speaking be put away from you. This is blasphemia. Now we know about blasphemous words. We know what it, I think we know what it means to blaspheme God. But additionally, whenever we blaspheme against God, we can think about this a little bit. It's not just shaking our fist at the sky. It's that which is slanderous and malicious and insulting. That's how 
Mounts defines it here, blasphemous slander or malicious talk. Additionally, in another related word in Titus 3 verse 2, to speak evil of no one they are instructed. And this is a variation of that word. Again, to blaspheme, insult, slander, curse, or to be slandered. Next, 1 Timothy 3 verse 11, likewise, talking about uh, deacons' wives, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers. 2 Timothy 3 verse 3, Unloving, unforgiving, this is talking about evil people. They are slanderers without self-control. Titus 2 verse 3, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, and so on. And this is these, uh, this word, diablos. And that means to be devilish or malicious, slanderous, as a noun, the devil himself, Satan or a wicked person who is like the devil. I find that to be very interesting. And then this will be our final word that we'll look at. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. No, not even to eat with such a person. This is a very serious thing that we are talking about here tonight. And this is what that word means, simply a slanderer or a verbal abuser. So what we're talking about tonight is not just gossip, it's not just slander, although that is involved in that, but it's also backbiting. It's also tail-bearing, being a false accuser, and blasphemy, and reviling, and railing, and being a verbal abuser against people, and evil speaking itself, malicious talk, defamation, and even, yes, being devilish. It's also worth noticing in the verses that we have read already and will read going forward that these words occur in both generic and specific senses. They appear in list of sins, but also in list of traits that one should avoid and in specific teaching verses as a principle to be followed uh, and in negative examples that are given. As much benefit as there would be to do a study on all of these words individually, I'm pretty sure we get the idea. Talking bad about people is bad. Now, I could stop right there, but I've got uh, 34 minutes left, and I'm not going to stop. And as much benefit as there would be to look at all of these, and even though we understand the principle, even though we can sum it up very simply, the more practical side of speech is much harder to figure out. In theory, this sounds pretty easy. Just avoid all of these things. But in practice, gossip and slander come much easier than we care to admit. So now let's talk a little bit about biblical examples of handling negative personal information. Perhaps you're familiar with this saying. Maybe at a funeral somewhere. Maybe you're talking about some sweet little old lady somewhere. Such and such, they were such a wonderful person, weren't they? They never said a bad thing about anybody. Not a negative word ever came out of their mouth in such testimonies. Oh, such a sign of benevolence. Such purity amongst these individuals, an absolute standard for the purest and best of souls. However, reality shows that even in the church, there were things said about individuals that weren't positive. And from our examples and definitions, we might wrongly, I believe, come to the conclusion that any and all negative speech should be avoided. And I don't think that is a biblical idea. I do not believe that this is true largely because of New Testament examples that we will look at that show individuals being spoken of in negative ways. And rather than just toss them aside, I think we have to look at the circumstances behind these examples to give ourselves a pattern for how negative information about individuals may be spoken. So, A is this. 
in this particular verse found in Acts chapter 28, verses 20 through 22, we have here a report, or we have here a, a, an instance here where Paul had assumed that they had heard about him, that they had heard an evil report about him and about the church. They hadn't, but they had about the Christian sect. They knew that it was everywhere spoken against. Now they listened to what Paul had to say, and Paul called them there to tell him his side of the story and to clear up misconceptions. Can this not give us a pattern as well? I believe that it can. If we know that there are others who are spreading false information about us, calling those direct individuals and clearing our name or names of those who are falsely accused to clear up misconceptions, speaking one-on-one and face-to-face certainly seems like something Christians can and should do. This does not qualify as gossip or slander or any such thing. Next, he heard of their ambush. Now, this is a lengthy reading. We're not going to read it for time's sake. But the gist of it and what we want to take notice of is found here in verses 16 and 17. And this is when Paul has been arrested. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. How did he come about this information? We don't know. We can surmise it wasn't public information. What did he do? He didn't hide the information that he received. He told the correct authorities about the plot and the authorities told him to say nothing. He went to his mother for guidance, then went to Paul for the same thing. And Paul encouraged the young man to tell the authorities. If this young man was doing something wrong, if he was using the information that he had garnered in an incorrect fashion, Paul would have put a stop to it, even if that meant putting his own life at risk. I have no doubt of that. But rather, he encouraged him to tell the proper authorities so that they could take action. And here's the principle, brethren. If we come across information that someone is genuinely at risk of life or limb, the information needs to go and only to the proper authorities so that they can handle that situation. That is not gossip. That is not slander to inform authorities of criminal activity. That is logical. That is honest. That is morally obligatory. There should not be a second thought given. We can never turn a blind eye to situations in which innocent people are in potential danger and not turn that information over to the proper authorities who are used by God, as we know in Romans 13 verse 4, to execute wrath on those who practice evil. C. Let's talk a little bit about unrepentant sin. We're going to notice a few verses here. 2 Timothy 4 verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Oh, that's not very nice. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Titus 1 verse 12, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Christians are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Continued. 2 Timothy 2 verse 17, And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Philippians 4 verse 2, I implore... Uh, Eodia and I implore Synecdoche to be of the same mind in the Lord. 3 John verses 9 and 10, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which 
he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. What do we see in common with all of these examples that we've just looked at? Individuals and even brethren who were in unrepentant sin that are spoken of in negative, even condemning ways. In some cases, the unrepentant sin was such that the information had to be passed on to other brethren so that they would know to avoid those who have strayed from the faith and were not repentant. And I believe that the point of these individuals being unrepentant is of key importance. That's why I've said it so many times. These statements were not issued about people who had sinned and then repented and changed their ways, or were having questions, or having a difficult time. When there is an individual that is openly in sin and refuses to change, it is quite biblical to speak of such individuals in negative terms. D, acknowledging past sinful realities. Now this is a, could be a little bit of a tricky point, but we'll go through it and see what we find. Philemon in verse 10 it says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. Skipping down in verse 17, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Remember, Philemon is a personal letter. This information that Paul is writing, it does not appear in any other epistles that he writes. What might this tell us? Acknowledging of someone's sinful past that has been repented of is something that we can do, but should not be continuously brought up or used against someone. Nowhere else in Paul's writings do we find mention of the backstory of Onesimus. It's obvious that this was not an off-discussed matter. Onesimus is not known referred to as that one person that was dishonest. He was believed to be a slave. That's not how he's referred to. Paul only talks about Onesimus' sinful past in a private letter, using vague terminology and with the goal of helping resolve any issues from the past so that it can be put to rest. If there is true repentance involved, such should be the case with us as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses verse 13 and in verse 16. Paul here says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Skipping to verse 16. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. This was information that was public knowledge about Paul. But Paul uses it himself for the purpose of teaching others the mercy of Christ. Unlike with Onesimus, Paul uses his own dark past frequently as a teaching and motivating tool. And this should tell us that we can acknowledge our own sinful past to others and use it to teach others if we so choose. That's not a requirement necessarily, but we should note it as an option. And then let's look at Galatians chapter 2. In verses 11 through 14, this is a lengthier passage really, but in verse 11 it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? 
Although this passage might give us some difficulty, I believe that this was public information. This was not a problem in a local congregation or amongst a chosen few, but with other apostles. Information that caused other people from other congregations to go astray. He's not revealing information that would not have been known, particularly because of their actions with the Judaizing teachers. This would have been an example that they would have pointed to as validity for their arguments. And in this, Paul does not place any undue responsibility on Peter nor anyone else. And we also see that this information is not used to blacken the name of Peter, but to teach the larger point that Peter had missed. And I know that some of that is supposition, but I believe that it's fair. And in all of this, intent is a very important key. Whenever we might turn to this point about acknowledging someone's sinful past, we must ask ourselves, why am I bringing up this past sinful reality that from all accounts no longer exists? Two of the three examples, that of Paul's passion, Peter's, were shown to be uh, for the purpose of teaching others about Christ and His Word. The other was a private letter written vaguely for the purpose of settling any past injuries suffered on behalf of a repentant brother in Christ. I would have a very hard time justifying any other intent than these in acknowledging sinful past realities of someone else. But our final point, point E here, using information given secondhand. In the book of 1 Corinthians, and Chapter 1, verse 11, it says there, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. In chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. In chapter 11, verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Other passages in the book perhaps, but I believe that these are the most applicable. Who did the house of Chloe go to? They went to an apostle. They went to the correct authority. This was not a mass letter that was sent out. This information was given to the proper authority because the congregation was heading in a direction that the house of Chloe could not follow. So what did Paul do with this information? We find that he wrote back to the entire church, even identifying the one who told he also didn't identify the individuals who were accused of doing wrong, we will notice. He didn't send out vast letters telling people, stay away from Corinth. Oh, Corinth has some bad problems. You don't want to be involved with Corinth. He didn't just talk back and forth with the household of Chloe either. He didn't write an entire letter calling out names. He didn't write an entire letter putting people down specifically. But rather, he kept everything above the table and he knew, and he sent Timothy to help correct the problems. He also believed the house of Chloe most likely because he knew the people of Corinth, having been there for an extended period. The report of their handling of the Lord's Supper, he says there in verse 18, he partially believed. So what did he do? What do you do when you partially believe something? Did he go looking for the validity of the claims to verify whether or not they were true? Did he send everyone down at Corinth? and interview them one by one to get their side of the story? No. He acknowledged the reports. He acted like they were true, pointed out the truths of the faith once delivered to them, and gave them instructions for how to fix the problem and move forward. Partially true or not, that's what he did. And what was important was that everyone was obeying God's will now moving forward. The letter of 1 Corinthians isn't stuck in the past. It acknowledges... the. It acknowledges that past, but then it moves forward. 
As a side note, a little soapbox here, if you will, as individuals, we are obsessed with self-validation and self-justification. We often want to get to the bottom of problems, not because it's actually needed, not because we actually need more information to make a decision, not because we can't figure out the solution, but because we want to be proven right. I was right. I called it. I need to be justified. We want everyone to know that, that we were telling the truth, that our reasons were legitimate. There's rarely an actual need for such. As a third party, Paul took the information that was given to him. He acted like it was true and gave corrective steps. Additionally, he sent Timothy to teach there in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 17. We see that to be the case. That is how these issues were settled. I think there's power in this example. And as we can see, negative information about people is present in New Testament Scripture. Would we call any of these responses gossip or slander? Would we call them backbiting or tail-bearing or reviling or blasphemy or evil speaking or any uh, one of the synonyms that we mentioned earlier? I wouldn't. And that's because these passages show that there is a pattern for handling information in regard to individuals. Well now, let's talk practically. What are some ways that we can avoid gossip and slander? First, A, we need to be promoting good news. We've talked an awful lot already about bad news. We need to be promoting good news as the saying goes. As the song goes also, bad news travels fast. And good news travels slow. Why? Because of sins like gossip. Because of slander. And in addition to thinking about that which is good and pure and upright as Philippians 4 verse 8 talks about, we would do well if that is what we talked about as well. If that's what came out of our mouths. Ask yourself, if you talk more about good things, about positive things, or negative. How often do you bring up the good that you see in your fellow man or in your brethren in Christ? How often do you brag on them and compliment them when they're doing well? When people ask you, you know, how's so-and-so doing? I haven't talked to them in a while. What do you say? Do you start out with a negative? Or do you start out with a positive? Where does your mind go? So much of beating this particular temptation is a change in mindset. Why do we talk about negative things about people? Because we like it, truthfully. Because we like to feel that outrage. Because we like to follow the drama. As much as we say we don't, we do. And we have to have a mindset that seeks after the positive and promotes the positive to others. A mindset that doesn't take pleasure in pain of other people, that doesn't enjoy being outraged by others' mistakes, but rather promotes love and peace and joy. And without such a mindset, avoiding the sins of gossip and slander will be much more difficult and practically impossible. Next, though, let's talk about directly communicating with individuals. Let's notice Matthew 18. In verse 15 it says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now we may come back to these verses 
But I think there's an interesting point to consider. If not in direct interpretation, then in application. What do we find that we are supposed to do if either a brother has something against us or we have something against a brother? You go and talk to them first. Then Matthew 18 shows the steps that need to take place if a resolution cannot be reached. What other applications can we garner from this concept? We have a duty, I believe, a responsibility, an obligation, and even a privilege to go straight to the source and talk to them about what is going on when it comes to sins. How much more would this apply when it comes to rumors or gossip and false reports and slander? How much more would this pattern be effective in situations that are specifically dealing in reconciliation? If you have a question about someone, if you have heard a rumor, if you have a doubt, go talk to them. It's not hard to figure out, but it's difficult to practice. In talking about this issue with Brother Bart Shaw here, I have a lot of good conversations with him, and he, he mentioned this. He made the comment that at the root of gossip and slander, this is really a courage issue more than anything else. And I believe he's 100% right. It's uncomfortable to go talk to that one person, isn't it? It doesn't feel right. It feels a little awkward, doesn't it? To bring up rumors and then settle them. Honesty is the best policy, but it's hard. And therefore, it's easier to go talk to 37 other people about the situation that have nothing to do with it than to talk about that one person that does. Someone might say, well, that would be rude. I don't want to be rude to go talk to them directly. I don't want to hear about rude, frankly. I don't want to hear about awkward or uncomfortable as excuses for committing sinful actions. Brethren, we have to grow up, frankly, and willing to face the music or get used to saying nothing at all. Let's also talk about setting boundaries. Now this can be tough to do sometimes, but remember we should not feel obligated to answer every question that people ask us. People ask us all kinds of questions all the time. You do not have to give an answer to every single one of them. We should not feel obligated to do that. We should feel comfortable showing that some topics are off the table. What information you are willing to share and what you cannot share. Make that boundary with yourself. We should also try to direct questions to the individual that is being asked about, as the biblical pattern shows that we should do. That helps brethren be accountable so that we don't enable others to gossip or slander. Be comfortable setting boundaries and not talking. But beyond setting boundaries with others, we have to get used to setting our own boundaries as well. We are much harder to control, which is why it's that, it's all that much more important to have guards and boundaries on what we say and why we say. You might ask yourself this question. If the person was present, would I still use the same words that I'm using now? Would I still communicate the same way that I'm communicating if they were in the room? Do your words about someone change depending on who's around? Do you catch yourself having to shut down conversations because, oh, someone's coming through the door? Tearing people down behind their back is the very essence of what we're trying to avoid. And we can relieve all the stress in that situation by being honest and sincere enough in what we say that it doesn't change depending on who's around. Additionally, let's ask this question. What's my motivation? Why am I saying the things that I'm saying? As we've already alluded to, intent is absolutely key. And often you will hear folks say something incredibly hurtful and rude and then follow it up with, well, it's the truth. Brothers, so-and-so stinks like a like a polecat in July. Well, it's the truth. The truth isn't the only thing 
that we need to be worrying about. As important as it is, that should not be the only governor that we have over the tongue. I can say something true about a person. I can tell a true story. But why? Why do I want to say that? Or say it in this way? Ask yourself, do I enjoy this? Do I enjoy taking, uh, talking about this person in this way? Do I feel like this person needs to be taken down a notch? We might ask, uh, I think we need to do this. We need to put away passive-aggressive behavior as well. Passive-aggressive behavior and speech. The attitude is not so much in what you say, but in how you say it. Most experts believe that anywhere from 70 to 93% of how we communicate with each other is nonverbal. We all know what passive-aggressive behavior sounds like. We've all done it, too. And we should be putting that away. But perhaps you're having trouble with this. Go to your elders and ask for help. Don't have elders? I suggest you get some. They're very helpful. Also, mind your own business. Now, this is a little harsh, I know, but we have an inherent fear of missing out. We want to be included in whatever it is that's going on. We want self-validation. We want to be justified in the eyes of everyone else. And there are a number of reasons why gossip is so tempting, but many of them stem out of our own inflated sense of self. And we need to remember that we are not that important. We need to remember that what I have to say is not nearly as show-stopping and needful as we think that it is. And we need to do more of keeping quiet and listening rather and staying out of other people's affairs as well. Proverbs 26 verse 20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. James 1 verse 19, so then my beloved brethren, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then of course, bridling his own tongue. If you don't do that, this one's religion is vain. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. As cliche and blunt as it is, the less we say in our conversations, the better off we'll probably be, generally speaking. And if you aren't sure if you should be saying it or not, shut up, pretty much. If it doesn't involve you or anything important, don't put your fingers in someone else's pie. But lastly, we need to confront people who gossip. What do we do with people, particularly brethren, who start up that conversation and then take you off to the side and they send the kids to the other room and say, oh, have you heard the news? Have you heard what happened to so-and-so? What do we do with that? First, I think we need to see the signs. Notice what they are. If someone is about ready to tell you intimate details about someone else, and spread information, if they only want that select crowd to hear what you're about to say, if they take you off to one of these corners of the church building, red flag, folks. You don't have to stand there for that. You don't have to be led over there for that. You do not have to listen to that. But what if some juicy tidbit slips in? Well, we might say things like, do they know that you're talking about this? Or have you talked to them about this topic? Or saying, hey, careful, careful brother, careful sister. That sounds an awful lot like sharing gossip in my purview, and truly we have a courage issue among us because rarely, if ever, do we hear these sentences spoken. We have to start using these. Well, you might say, you know, I'm an introvert. I don't like confrontation. I don't like confrontation either. So maybe you might use one of these sentences saying, this makes me uncomfortable. Or can we change the subject, please? This isn't helpful. This isn't Christian behavior. And we have to remember that confronting people about gossip, that's not an option. As much as we wish that it could be. As much as we'd like to just remove ourselves from the equation. From verses like 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11 and 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, those who habitually commit such sins unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of heaven and should be withdrawn fellowship from. That is serious. And it cannot be allowed. But let's conclude here. We've got about 10 minutes or so. to Talk about practical questions. 
And these are difficult, and I admit that they're difficult. But let's notice a few. What's the difference between gossip and bearing a burden, if you will, or confiding in someone? Well, we've looked at a great deal of information already, but let's look at this. Galatians 6 verse 2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens, doesn't it? Usually those burdens will have details about situations regarding other people. Sometimes our greatest burdens are people, aren't they? At what point does confiding in someone become gossip? Well, here are a few criteria that might help in determining such a thing. You might ask yourself, or you might do this, telling limited people with limited information. This is not something that you're just telling and spreading at every opportunity that you have. If you are confiding in someone, if you are helping bearing, uh, bear a burden, or someone is helping you bear that burden, you're telling limited people, and you're not giving every single detail. They don't need that to make an informed decision. Also, there's a point in telling them. This isn't someone who offers absolutely no help to the situation. That can't actually help you overcome the situation that you're asking to help them bear. Also, they provide you with help that you need. You specify that I am confiding in you. I am giving this to you and I want you to keep it safe. I do not want this spread. And you only communicate with people that you trust. Now, these are suggestions, these are guidelines, these are my personal opinion, but I would suggest that if we can't even meet a few of these, then we may just be regular old gossiping rather than actually confiding in someone or bearing a burden. Next, should we be talking about congregational problems outside of the congregation? You know, sometimes there's situations that are going on that we need help and wisdom with. That's very, very true. And therefore, when that happens, what we just talked about, the guidelines of confiding in others previously shown should apply to this situation as well. But other than the situation of seeking advice and confiding, if there is an ongoing issue that is in a congregation that is private information for only the parties concerned until it is taken before the church, and that being the church local. Spreading local church private information to other brethren and other congregations is not permissible. That is gossip. That is slander. When a resolution has been made, when one is in unrepentant sin and is withdrawn from, then that information may be shared with other congregations. Unrepentant sin again. If the one in question repents, why would we want to talk about that? Why would we want to spread that? Let's ask this. Maybe casually talk about other people and what's going on in their lives. I think we absolutely can. Paul did so with Apollos in 1 Corinthians 12 verse, or 16, verse 12. He also talks about the health of Epaphroditus there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 26. But again, intent is key and wisdom is required. The wisdom of Solomon indeed. We've had a lot of great stories told. And none of them have been malicious. And sometimes people will say, oh, this is gossip. I don't believe it's gossip. I don't believe it's slander to tell stories. But again, intent is key. Am I trying to take them down a notch? Am I destroying their character? Am I painting them in a bad light? Intent is key. Next. What about gossip and slander received about brethren from anonymous sources? What if you just hear something in the wind? Brethren, there's a principle all throughout Scripture, and it's this. The witness of two is true. We read it there in Matthew chapter 18. You read it in John chapter 8 verse 17, and in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. The witness of two is true. There is no such thing as an anonymous witness, biblically speaking. It's like a jumbo shrimp. It's an oxymoron. Because the point of witnessing is the fact that you are making yourself known and putting your character and reputation as someone trustworthy and reliable on the line. 
because of that which you have witnessed. Now, yes, in our legal system, there are anonymous witnesses, but not totally anonymous. There are still people who know who they are and out of fear for their lives, they determine that their identity should be kept from the general public. That doesn't and should never happen in the church where we are afraid for someone's safety or someone's lives that we have to keep their identity a secret. That's not church behavior. And if that's a problem, then we have big problems. Additionally, anyone can make allegations. I can say anything right now about anybody. But those have to be backed up with testimony and with proof. Otherwise, they don't mean a thing. Just making an allegation is not enough to convict someone in a court of law in the United States, why should we accept anything less in the Lord's church? I would contend that such actions are not to condemn someone guilty of actual sin in the court of the Lord, but to blacken someone's name in the court of public opinion. And that is a serious sin to commit and the consequences quite dire. If there are allegations that come forward that are anonymous that no one will come forward to defend towards a brother or sister in sin, the intent is clear and those should be tossed aside and discarded. I truly believe this. Let's notice... Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens to a spiteful tongue. And additionally, I would point out that there are no private investigators ever ordained in the Lord's church. And if we're going around trying to dig up dirt on someone's past for every whisper we hear in the wind, are we any better than the one who started the rumor? I dare say that we are not. Proverbs 16 verse 27, An ungodly man digs up evil, and it's on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Our final question we will address. How should gossip and slander received about preachers, elders, or leaders affect our decision-making process? We'll start here. Congregations have the autonomy to use whoever they so choose in worship. You don't have to use anybody if you don't want to. You can use who you choose with, of course, limitations in mind. There is no code in the Bible that specifies that if a preacher passes through, you have to put him in the pulpit on Sunday morning and give him a paycheck out the door. There is nothing in the Bible that says that. But with that being said, if we are making such decisions as a method of discipline, or a test of fellowship unilaterally that is contrary to the pattern of biblical discipline. For years we have preached about evangelistic efforts being taken on in organizations beyond the local congregation as being wrong and anti-biblical. This is absolutely correct. Evangelism is the responsibility of individual local congregations and should not be delegated to any structure larger or different than the local congregation. And the same is true when it comes to church discipline. There is no disciplinary system larger than the local church. We are wrong if we think we can have four or five congregations over here decide they won't use someone in services or won't invite them for a gospel meeting because they heard a rumor, they heard this, they heard that, and without informing his local congregational leadership about sin, without using Matthew 5, without using Matthew 18 to resolve the conflict, no, we just won't ask him here anymore because we don't like him and think he's in sin. That's a disciplinary system larger than the local congregation. It's wrong and it's caused more sin in church politics than near anything I can think of. If there is a brother in sin, the local congregation disciplines him according to the Bible. If that has not happened, what authority does any other congregation have to do it unilaterally? If there is sin involved, that has to be dealt with scripturally. If there is no sin involved, 
then what are we doing? What's the problem? And if there are brethren that are genuinely concerned that believe this, these allegations, there's two places to go. You go to the individual first, and then you go to the local leadership of the congregation second. If there is no need for concern on either of these fronts, it should not affect our decision-making process. We have one minute left, and I will conclude here. I'm going to put these verses up here on the board. There are many verses in the Bible that talk about this. There is so much to be said, and there will always be practical issues that will come across in our lives that will make us wonder if we're doing it correctly. And I will add, this study really hit home with me. It really did, because I looked from passage to passage, and I knew that my speech has not always been what it ought to be in situations where I should have known better. And I'm not preaching to anybody. For every finger I point, I have four more pointing back at me. And the final point I want us to make, if you get anything out of this lesson, this is it. Love, kindness, and respect towards our fellow man, and in particular our brethren, must reign supreme. So much harm could be avoided and past wrongs made right if we remember these very basic truths, love one another. Thank you.